0: And if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Hosea chapter 13. We are almost done with the prophet Hosea after taking a brief interlude for the past five weeks. We have two chapters to go in Hosea. So we will finish this prophecy up over this morning and then next Sunday morning as well. Usually when prophets like the book of Hosea are dealt with, We like to deal with them in chunks. If you hear sermon series on books of prophecy like Hosea, often there is sort of this leapfrogging that's done throughout the book. It makes a lot of sense if you think about it. You can touch on the high points and pull out the major themes of the book, and you can skip the parts you don't want to touch. And it keeps people from being worn out, too, as listeners. And we'd have to admit, there are a lot... ...of very dark and foreboding sections of the book of Hosea. But, we haven't done it in sections and in chunks for a very particular reason. It might be easier on the preacher and it might be easier on the hearer to do it that way... ...but when it's all said and done, you don't walk away with a sense of knowing what the book is about you could walk away saying, I think our preacher has a pretty good idea of what this book is about. But we don't have a good sense of what this book as a whole is saying to us. So we've chosen to do it the hard way. And you've hung in there well. And we have two Sundays to go. And we'll draw Hosea's prophecy to a close. Young Christians, young theologians, one question for you to listen for and answer this morning... What do you need to be able to love? That's it. See if you can answer that question. Most adults, most of your parents couldn't answer that question right now. See if you can hear it and answer by the time we're done. This is the good news of Jesus from Hosea chapter 13. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal, and he died. And now they sin more and more, and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It's said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist, or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, or like smoke from a window. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and beside me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full, they were filled, and their heart was lifted up. And therefore they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear ro- robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, Give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him. But he's an unwise son. For at the right time he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord, shall come rising from the wilderness And his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt. Because she has rebelled against her God. And they shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces. And their pregnant women ripped open. O Lord, our God, the only hope that weak and broken worshipers like us have as we come and present ourselves before you is knowing and being assured that the living God withholds nothing from those he loves. All that you have, you say to us, take it, it's yours. I have it to give to you. And so we don't have to steal or swindle or make a way for ourselves. Instead, we have only to turn to our God and say, be gracious to us and give to us what is yours. Give to us what you want us to have and turn our hearts away from all the futile, frivolous things that we chase after instead Lord make us dissatisfied with those things show us how hollow and empty they are how they can never love us and turn our hearts to see that in love you give to us all good gifts satisfy us only in your love and make us restless deeply restless until you do And for all of these things, we will give you thanks. We ask it in the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? Prophecy is a very hard and difficult literary form to make sense of. And that's why, in Hosea's book, The Shadows of Hosea, the prophet, the man... And his runaway wife, Gomer, their shadows are always lurking in the background. It it makes all this very much less abstract and much more local for ordinary people like us who like to ask, what does any of this have to do with me? And so the difficult love story between Hosea and Gomer says to us, it has everything to do with you. It would not be very loving of Hosea to do what Hollywood celebrity spouses do when their loved ones make disastrous choices, and that is to issue a statement through a publicist that says something like, I support Gomer in her life choices and I wish her all the best. That's not love. It's trying to put a good face on cowardice. It's cowardice wrapped in public relations. And anyway, Hosea can't do it because what Gomer does is not a life choice. It's a death choice. And he can't run out into the street after her and call as she leaves him yet again dangerously dolled up. But what about the sanctity of marriage? And doesn't commitment mean anything to you? This isn't about principles. And this isn't about duty. Which is the way Christians want to talk about love and marriage. And it's also the reason no one wants to listen to us talk about love and marriage. The only statement that would work to yell after Gomer as she leaves again, the only thing that might make her turn around is the most foolish statement of all. I love you. And I want you. And I love you so bad it hurts to breathe when you're not here. And I don't want another to have you. And I want you to be mine. You can write novels and poems and ballads and screenplays and gospels about a love like that. If you can read chapter 13 with Hosea and Gomer lurking in the background, then this chapter starts to make sense, which is good because this is another very dark, very difficult chapter. With God putting himself in roles that we don't much like. He's a destroyer in verse 3. He's a predator in verses 7 and 8. A lion, a leopard, a bear, a beast he calls himself. And he's an invader, a vicious assailant in verse 16. But the way to read all of these images of warning is God standing in the street calling after his runaway bride, his runaway people saying, you're going after lovers who can't love you. Saviors who can't save you, flatterers who are really tricksters and abusers. But I love you, and I want you so bad it hurts. And I want you to be loved by me and not given to any other. And I want you so bad I could bleed for you. And he does just that. So here's the Holy One, the Savior the gracious groom, the great lover, standing out in the street, calling after us, not yelling curses or threats. Like, you'll be sorry. You'll wish you hadn't. You'll pay for this. Not, how could you? He stands out in the street and he yells, I love you. It's a scene straight out of a streetcar named Desire where a young Marlon Brando plays Stanley Kowalski, and he stands down in the street, crying and yelling up at the elevated front door of a New Orleans townhouse, where Stella, his wife, who has left him, is hiding away. She's holed herself up in the home of her sister, And you know the scene, Stanley is down in the street, calling her name over and over and over again. He can't be consoled, he won't be silenced, he howls her name like a wounded animal. He pulls his hair out, he claws his face, and he weeps, and slowly and painfully she comes out of the door. She walks down the steps of the sweeping staircase when she steps from the last stair to the street level, Stanley drops to his knees and she folds herself in half over him and soaks up his back. And all he says is, don't ever leave me, baby. And they stand And melt into one another with a kiss of deep passion. And that's what God wants with His people. And it shows us the problem. The love of God's life keeps leaving Him. That's how God explains it in verse 9. He is against you, O people, because you are against Him. You're against your Helper. The love of His life keeps running out on Him, and she doesn't need to. She shouldn't. She won't find a deeper, truer love for herself out there. And that's why God has turned against her, remember? He's turning her back to Himself. It's not vengeance what He does. He's not maliciously trying to wound her heart and leave it wounded. He's fighting to win her heart back. But her abandoning of Him is chronic according to verse 2. She does it repeatedly and now they sin more and more, the verse says. They make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver. They take their jewelry, they melt it down, they forge it into new gods. All of their gods are the work of craftsmen. You can hear the problem with that, can't you? These gods that you have, you have made them, they have not made you, and they can't make you. You set them up, and you bow down to them, and as soon as you do, they clamp chains to your necks and your ankles and your wrists, because every idol is a hateful tyrant. They can't lift you up, and they can't lift you out of the mess of you. They only sink you deeper in the mire that already pools up within you until you're so deep you can't see the surface anymore. And according to the verse, we can make idols out of just about anything. And according to the verse, we do. In fact, everything we touch becomes an idol. Idols can be things that may seem a religious, they have nothing to do with religion or religious observance, and they can be things that are explicitly religious, they can be holy and sacred things, believe it or not anything that we rely on or are comforted by or need more than Jesus, that's an idol. Anything that's a rule to itself. Anything that is so important in your life that it does not have to answer to another jurisdiction. It is its own sovereignty in your life. Anything that we misunderstand And we put in a position it was never meant to occupy. Our idols are always gifts that prove to us God's love. Our idols are always expressions of God's goodness and love to us. And we make of those things the sources and the givers of goodness and love. We give them too much credit. We over enjoy them. We say of them, this is what makes my life worth living. And if you want to find your idol, it's easy. What do you evangelize to? What do you call others in your life to join you in valuing most with you? What do you call those who live with you or around you to join you in venerating? What do you protect? What do you fight to keep other people from tampering with and touching? This is this is too meaningful and you can't have anything to do with this. You can't get in the way of my having this thing in this way. Or what do you work at harder than anything else? That's the thing you love and that's what you worship. And anything you worship more than you worship God Himself is the wrong object of worship. All of this explains for us one of the deepest mysteries of our lives, one of the deepest mysteries of theology, one of the deepest mysteries of Hosea's prophecy. And here it is. Why does God turn so forcefully against the people He loves? Why doesn't He just make war on our idols if He hates them so much? Because idols have no life of their own. Idols are not living things. They only have life because we give it to them. They are only alive in our hearts... We give birth to them and we keep them alive. So to get at our idols, God has to break our misdirected hearts. This Christmas, as we were thinking about the incarnation, the coming of Jesus, the Word made flesh. We were using different artists' renderings of the birth of Jesus. And as I was getting ready to take my part in all of that. I found this piece of art, a painting dating from the year 1423 that was stunning. It wasn't the style. I didn't like the style. It was a gothic illustration. I'm not big on the gothic style. It had all the typical colorful scroll work around the margins of the illustration. It had figures who were expressive but they were really kind of grotesquely ugly. The painting is done by a man that we only know as the Bedford Master. He was a manuscript illuminator. He would make these little drawings in the texts of Bibles or other religious books. He ran a print shop, but we don't know much else about him. The illustration is named, not so much by the Bedford Master, but by the rest of us who have lived with it ever since 1423 when it was first introduced... The illustration is known by the title, The Toppling of the Idols. And it's a simple picture. You've seen the scene before. Joseph is leading Mary, who's riding on a donkey, and she's carrying the infant Jesus in her arms. And they're fleeing to Egypt, trying to escape Herod's attempts to kill the newborn Christ, the rival king. And as they enter into Egypt, as they arrive in Egypt, in the background, a gold idol is falling off its pedestal. And its arms are outstretched. It's trying to catch itself as it falls. But it's too late. Jesus has come. And He really is the King of kings. And all our idols have to lose their place when He passes by, when He comes into our lives, when He calls us, when He claims us for Himself. And that's much of the pain that we feel in our lives. Christ coming with power and authority and love into our lives and our idols being thrown down from their pedestals. And they try to catch themselves. And we try to catch them too. We try to keep them from falling. But they can't remain intact. They can't remain untouched. They can't remain in place. Because they can't have us if Christ has come to love us. The coming of Jesus is the announcement. Oh my people, you have the wrong loves. Why do we do it then? Most of us wouldn't argue the point. But here's the piece that's hard to explain. Even knowing we have the wrong loves, we still turn and chase after them again and again and again. We're just like Gomer. We run out on the one who loves us most and deepest and best. Why do we do it? Every time... He speaks His love to us with tablets of stone that have His heart engraved on them. Or by sending fiery-eyed prophets with spit in their beards and tears in their eyes to be holy clowns. Or sending an army of angels not to wage war of judgment, but to fill the skies singing the absurdity of divine peace sent to earth to wash over sinners or sending His light to shatter the darkness that we desperately try to pull down upon ourselves and cloak ourselves with. Every time He speaks His love to us, we're moved to some shallow, unlasting emotion and then we run. And every time He bends low to kiss us, With the mystery of a cross. With sufferings and trials not designed to frustrate us, but designed to build deep into our fibers joy and faith that last. Joy and faith that can't be explained. When He bends low to kiss us with repentance. The longer I live in the church, the more I see Christians... Moving farther and harder and more stridently away from repentance. We'll do anything we can do not to repent, but He gives repentance to us as His kiss. It's the only thing that bleeds the power of our sin out. The sin that we try to manage and cover up and insist on lugging around with us, even though all it wants to do is snap our necks. Every time he bends low to kiss us, his kiss feels too confining, and we run. Why do we do it? Because fake love is easy, and that's what we prefer. Fake love is easy, and real love is impossible. It's terrifying to think about love in its truest sense, in its truest form. You have to put yourself in the hands of one you didn't make. You have to set your life in the hands of one over whom you have no authorial intent. You have no authority over this one. And you put yourself in another's hands and say, You make me. That's love. Idolatry and spiritual adultery in all its forms are so easy because true love is utterly impossible. And I know that's not the way we typically talk about love. We like to minimize it and say it's difficult, it's hard, it's challenging, it's a struggle, we like to say. It isn't true, it's an impossibility. And to prove it, if you can talk about God's love without using the language of impossibility, well, then you're not actually talking about His love. You're talking about something else. How does God love us? With the impossibility of the Holy One choosing unholy people without giving up on His holiness, without pretending it doesn't exist. How does God love us? With the impossibility of perfection coming to meet us and catch us and keep us in our runaway flesh. How does God love us? With the impossibility of grace, which means all our wrong and all our weakness being suffered by another one and that one refusing to be turned away from us. The impossibility of Grace and always enough of it to outsize our mountainous guilt. How does God love us? Through the impossibility of reaching for us through the shame and the scandal and the joy of a cross. How does God love us? Through the impossibility of fighting death for the right to love us eternally and walking out of. Death's fortress, the winner, the hands-down winner. How does He love us? With the impossibility of making lost causes reborn. And that's it. That's how we come to love. We can't love on our own, the passage says. We can't manufacture it. We can't produce it. We can't drag it up in ourselves. It's in verse 13. You're trapped in your sin. It's too much for you to escape, and you need to be reborn. You need to be made into something new. But you refuse, he says. You hang back in the womb. You refuse to come alive when birth pangs call for you, when the holy contractions start. It's graphic language, but here's what he says. You should be something entirely different and you hang yourself up in the birth canal and you will not come out. And then in verse 14, he says, but I won't leave you dead. I'll redeem you. I'll make you my own. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? I will have no compassion on you. He's speaking to death there, not his people. No mercy from me will you receive, O death. I'll snatch my loved ones from your jaws. And Paul picks this statement up and paraphrases it later in 1 Corinthians 15 when he's talking about the power of the resurrection of Jesus for dead people like us. All that He's saying to us in all of this is we're being born out of the tombs of our lovelessness when He gives birth to new hearts in us. He turns the graves and the crypts of our hearts into nurseries when He delivers His own heart in us. Idolatry and adultery are so easy because love is impossible. But the good news is God brings us into His impossible love by giving birth to His heart in us. We give birth to idols. And He gives birth to eternal saving love in us. And it's just like a newborn. This new heart in us It appears there's something there that wasn't there before. And it gestates. And it saps strength and energy from other parts of our lives just like a fetus does in the mother who carries it. And then it comes. It appears. It's born. And it demands attention. And it wants to be nursed. It wants to be nurtured. And it interrupts our sleep. And it requires that our lives are rearranged all around this thing. And that's the new heart. We begin loving like we've never loved before in things that aren't native to us. Things that we can't explain, but they're there. That's the thing, Christians. There aren't... Words needed to account for these things. They're just inarguably there and you begin to love the things that God Himself loves. Righteousness and purity and forgiveness and reconciliation and repentance and maturity and grace and wisdom. How do you know the the new heart has been born inside of you? Verse 9 will be turned inside out for you instead of pushing and fighting against God as your helper, you'll begin to pray in all sincerity, with all feeling, with all meaning, you are the only help I have. And then you'll go a little bit further and a little bit deeper, and you'll begin to say, with all sincerity and all feeling and all meaning, you are the only help I need. And then you'll go further and deeper still, you are the only help I want. That's it. Then you know Jesus has ridden through your life and He's begun to knock your idols over and topple them one by one and cut their pedestals in half. You're the help that I want. Verse 9, rearranged, is the only thing powerful enough to pull us away from our idols. The end of our idols, with their easy artificial love, is being convinced... By the birth of the new heart in us, of the impossible love of Jesus. It doesn't really matter if you're a skeptic or a Christian or a young believer or a wizened old disciple. We have all and we all do misuse love. We twist it and we vandalize it and we steal it and we take it back to our chop shop. And we try to rebuild it according to our own specifications. And it always goes horribly wrong. And then Hosea presents himself to us. And he says to us that love is not ours to make of it what we want. And to do with as we please. Love is only meant to give us the endless pleasures of God. And because it's not ours, we have a strange relationship to love. We crave it and we fear it. We want it and we want to avoid it. I think it's all captured perfectly in a little scene from one of the Narnia books. In the silver chair, a schoolgirl named Jill Pohl is sucked into Narnia. And as soon as she arrives, she meets Aslan the lion. A profound picture of Jesus, really. And the lion is resting on its forepaws in front of a stream as Jill runs into it. And the lion speaks first and says, Are you not thirsty? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered only with a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this, as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry, it just said it. I don't think I should come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step near. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Jesus is standing in the middle of Hosea chapter 13 and he's saying to us, you make countless idols and you set them up in your lives because you're enticed by fake love and you're dying of thirst and there is no other stream. You must drink from my love. That will dry Hosea's tears. And that will call the philandering Gomer home for good. And that will cause all of our idols to topple and not be able to catch themselves. There is no other stream. That truth is what gives birth to new hearts in us... And it pulls us away from our invented versions, our fake versions of love that never satisfy us. You're dying of thirst. Come and drink. There is no other stream. I love you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, forgive us for settling on easier but entirely fictitious versions of love because we have not liked love as You require it and give it to place ourselves in Your hands and to demand nothing of You. The foolishness of saying, If I come to you, will you promise not to do anything to me? And in your beauty and power and grace, you say, I make no promise. And having to yield ourselves to your power and rule and authority, your kindness and goodness and love, which can't be diluted and can't be undone, having to be remade in these. Love is impossible for us, so give birth to your heart within us. We are people who like to hide out in the womb and claim that we are fully developed and fully matured. Instead, oh Lord Jesus, we pray that you would Convince our hearts that there is no one who loves us more fully, more deeply than you. And with this, we'll be able to put ourselves in verse 9 in the appropriate way. We'll be able to say, you are the only help I have, and you are the only help I need, and you are the only help I want. Oh, Lord, give us the new birth so that our hearts can stop their running away. And for all of this, we will give you thanks and we will give you praise. And we ask it in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.